This is The Guardian. More than two million Ukrainian refugees have now fled their country. It's the fastest growing refugee crisis in Europe since the Second World War. Many here in the UK feel Britain should be doing more to help. Even some Tory MPs are baffled and angry. This is a disgrace. When the minister leaves his dispatch box, they ask him to go back to the home office and tell them to get a grip. That's the Conservative MP Alex Shelbrook shouting at the junior immigration minister Kevin Foster. You might remember him. He was the one who suggested that Ukrainians could come here and pick fruit and vegetables. As the situation in Ukraine worsens, the focus is also moving to Russia's gas and oil. You can't simply close down uh, use of, uh, of oil and gas uh, overnight, uh, even from, from Russia. That's, that's, that's obviously not something that uh, every country around the world can, can do. What the Prime Minister said there highlights familiar hostility on the right to the government's net zero target for carbon emissions and his apparently weakening support of it. As ever, there's lots to talk about. I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnists Raphael Baer and Zoe Williams. Hello to you both. Hello, John. Hello. Um, before we look at what is happening in Ukraine and how it's playing out in the UK, I wanted to ask you both about President Zelensky's speech to Parliament on Tuesday. Zoe, you wrote about this for The Guardian. I did. I mean, in the moment, I, I, I did think it was incredibly poignant because it, the language was very pared down, you know. It was extremely kind of stripped out of rhetoric or flourish until the end. It was a, like just a really bald description of the 13 days up to that point. And it was, I thought it was devastating. Yeah, I came to it backwards in a way because I didn't watch it live because I had a you know, deadline. So I caught up with it on the radio this morning. And so I had it sort of preceded by a lot of the political commentary, which sort of prepared me to feel slightly sort of jaundiced and cynical about everything and the MPs and what was going on in the House of Commons and I was sort of detached from it and then so it slightly caught me by surprise how moved I was actually by it I was out walking my dog listening to it um, on headphones and I found myself actually properly moved because I, I, I wasn't expecting uh, that at all it, it slightly took me back I don't know whether this is too crass a way of looking at it but I suppose one could feel one or two things or both at once actually which is that it was an affirmation of how of the fact however damaged and compromised our democracy is, we have common cause with him in some way, and there's something very moving in that. Or and or, you could take it as the fact that, that he there was a sort of shaming aspect implicitly to it, somewhat. Yeah, I think given some of the foot dragging on on actions related to Ukraine that the government's done, and perhaps some of the positioning of particular MPs. I think it was the former, certainly that that had the sort of guts, the visceral impact on me. Just thinking, just you know, you can in our game in particular in journalism, you can get quite jaded, and your nerves can get dulled to horror. Uh, and for some reason, he did manage to cut through that, and and just the sheer scale of what is going on, and as you say, the fact that uh, he was addressing Parliament, and there was a moment of democratic solidarity. Uh, one way or another, I felt that transmitted. Actually, I was quite impressed. So, you've, uh, judging by what you wrote, you sort of felt that side of it as well. The the thing is, is that you you know you know MPs aren't meant to clap in the House of Commons. I'm sure you two both know that better than they I do. They do occasionally, I, I, don't I only, they? I only, I only remembered it yesterday. But there was something about the sight of them all kind of standing up and giving him that ovation, both when he started and when he finished, that was kind of it. It was actually quite 
it, it really, really rammed home the gravity of the situation. You know, you saw them as human beings as well, which is incredibly unfamiliar to look at the Tory front bench, at least, and think, oh, those are also frightened human beings. But by PMQs, they were all back to being exactly as kind of performative <laughs> and ridiculous and dishonest <laughs> as they always are. So, I mean, I would be careful not to overstate the imp- the kind of common cause and soul matery of British parliamentarians and um, Volodymyr Zelensky. I think it did exactly what you said, actually, John, that it kind of made you, there was an implied devastation in it that that he's having to explain at all that they're people just like us. And this suffering is completely unwarranted. They, you know, it's, it, to, to have to explain that to another country is a kind of painful thing and painful to watch. It was beautifully put. Um, now, what we're going to look at today are the government's confused and some would say disgraceful response to uh, the Ukrainian refugee crisis and how Britain and other countries are moving away from reliance on Russian oil and gas and the question of the, net, the government's net zero target net zero carbon emissions by 2050 and where that stands now. Let's talk about refugees to start with. The United Nations has announced that more than 2 million people have fled Ukraine since the beginning of the Russian invasion. Um, and we all know that the government is on the end of um, all sorts of uh, criticism for what seems to be a mixture of sort of stubbornness and nastiness and also a high level of incompetence. Um, so far... I mean, the numbers are moving all the time, but the the numbers of visas granted to Ukrainian refugees by Britain numbers disgracefully in the hundreds, whereas other countries are well into the thousands. And there's just the plain fact that we are requiring a visa when the countries of the EU are not. Right next to us, in fact, geographically, is one of those, Ireland. Priti Patel, uh, earlier this week, raised the prospect of a new humanitarian route for refugees from Ukraine, which Downing Street then seemed to rule out. Then Priti Patel said that a bespoke visa application centre had been set up en route to Calais. I don't know quite what that means, because obviously if you're, if you're in Johannesburg, Cairo is en route to Calais, but it doesn't mean very much. Before clarifying that the work was not complete yet, and there was that very memorable image of a sort of trestle table somewhere in the region of Calais with some crisps on it. Um, speaking on Tuesday, her opposite number, the Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper, powerfully, I thought, laid out the dismal government response to Ukrainian refugees. Most people want to stay close to home, but some want to come here to join family or friends, and we should be helping them. Instead, most people are still being held up by home office bureaucracy or being turned away. Yesterday, the Home Secretary told the House twice that a visa centre en route to Calais has now been set up, but it still doesn't exist. That was Powerful, authentic stuff, I thought, watching that. Well, yeah, it's interesting also when you, that Yvette Cooper is a, is a shrewd politician as well as someone who I think cares strongly about these things and has in the past taken you know, a more, for want of a better word, conservative line on issues of, of migration when you know, that has been something that's been problematic for the Labour Party. And clearly she feels, among other things, that the the, the public is very much on, on her side on this one. And th- that came across also in some of the interventions we had from Conservative MPs talking about their constituents uh, and sounding, you know, to the untrained ear like irate left liberals about this in or, or as would have been not that long ago which is a sign I think of just the fact that the just the moral imperative of this question has blasted a lot of the what we would have expected the political structures and the shape of the argument to have been just out of the water because we're talking about a different reality now I mean whether it's specifically left liberal irateness or not irateness is the obvious response the most visceral natural automatic response to all this 
I mean, you see these things popping up yeah. all the time, Zoe. Our colleague Amelia Gentleman, the brilliant Guardian reporter, was on Twitter earlier on talking about the, the family of uh, a, a former London bus driver called Yakiv Voloshuk. And they were twice detained, detained by UK border force officials at Calais. They made eight trips to the UK visa centre in Paris, two trips to the British consulate, and what at one trip to the UK embassy before finally being allowed to travel to the UK. And these are people who've come out of a theatre of war. I mean, it's un- unimaginable. This. It, it, it's it's completely unimaginable. And right at the moment, there's the, Johnson has two lines. One is that he it, the number is uncapped, and it could be you know it, he is not expecting it to be anything less than the hun- numbers in the hundreds of thousands. But how that actually works when they can't get themselves together to get more than 300 people out in th- 13 days just makes no sense to me. I just don't understand if you're going to kind of erect these layers of bureaucracy, whether it's a humanitarian visa or a family visa. I don't understand how they expect to, to get num- get numbers of refugees in any amount. The other line which Johnson is coming out with really, really constantly at the moment is that the UK has set as settled more vulnerable people than any other European country since 2015. Now, this is bollocks. Um, it's, they've, the UK has settled more under the resettlement scheme, which is about 25,000. I think the nearest is Sweden. But the resettlement scheme is a tiny, tiny fraction of the actual number of um, refugees, right? So all this has meant is that everybody from Ian Blackford of the SNP to the BBC is just constantly producing numbers of how far we're falling short compared to the rest of Europe. And it's really, really chilling. Like like a lot of people, there's a certain bafflement in one's response to this, like how can this be allowed to happen? And I wanted to get into maybe trying to begin to answer that. Now, moving through Parliament at the moment, this seems to me to be the sort of central point of relevance, is the government's Nationality and Borders Bill. Last week, the House of Lords struck down some parts of the bill. What they struck down, among other things, were parts of the bill that essentially said that if you came here as a refugee via an irregular route, which is to say if you pitch up here without having been to a a visa application centre, then you stood a good chance of falling foul of the law and even going to prison. Now, that that was struck down. And we don't know now what the government response to that is going to be and whether they want to revive that part or those parts of the bill but that you know up until this point was very clearly its stance on on refugees and it seems to me that in the government's mind uh, in its own sort of nasty awful way might be the thought that if you go the way of the eu on your openness to ukrainian refugees and the logic that sits under that legislation and the government's entire stance on questions of, of refugees and asylum then then are gone yeah i think it's it's interesting first of all it's worth pointing out the, the, why the Lords struck that particular clause out of the bill. I mean, apart from the fact they were generally appalled by it, but also it's a pretty direct contravention of, I think, the 1951 um, Convention on Refugees, a UN convention that says very explicitly that you shouldn't make the fact of being a refugee illegal. Yes. How someone gets to yes. the country is not relevant to, what, to their claim to, to asylum. Um, it, it seems to me that there is that structural... A conflict going on now at the heart of government between an entire apparatus of, of migration policy that expressed, as you say, in the Nationalities and Borders Bill, and then this new situation, which I suspect a lot of people in government and in the Home Office will be thinking is a discrete event. And yes, there's a lot of moral urgency around that now, but in the sort of Home Office mentality, there will be a feeling that that will pass and then we'll go back to the politics of migration that we've always had and you can sort of ride this out. Uh, and I, I got that feeling quite strongly. First of all, when talking to a 
Tory MP about this raising the nationalities and borders bill and being told, no, no, that's nothing to do with it. Uh, just think how generous we were to, the, to, to people needing visas from Hong Kong. Uh, yeah, these two things are totally unrelated. The, the position being, you can't conflate these two things. You think, well, you kind of can when it's literally a law about refugees. And but the other thing, interesting line that you get, that you hear is this sense that, you know, you, you have to, you can't have no checks. That's why the reason, one of the reasons it's taking so long, apparently, to process the visas is you've got to go through all the biometrics. You know, you've got to basically, you know, take the pictures and prove verify identities, all the stuff that the EU's basically waived and said you don't have to do. And that, to me, expresses this determination that you can't undermine the bureaucratic integrity of the migration process just because there's a war in Ukraine. Whereas, obviously, I think a lot of people in the country are thinking that's exactly what you can and must do. And that's the conflict. Because the incompetence on show... I know. I mean, it's hard to keep track of this. That, that there's now meant to be a new visa application centre opening in Lille, which is I don't know, sixty or seventy miles at least from Calais. And why pick there? And oh, then I can these, send you these the answer to that, by the way. Why pick there? Well, because it's next to the Eurostar, presumably. Well, no, it, well, it's because you, they, if you, the, the argument is that if you have people too close to Calais, then they become prey for the evil oh, boat yes, people. Oh yes, yes, Who and then, and then you know, it's this idea that somehow by you know, it, it's it, by making it harder for people. You, you, you're somehow making it harder for the bad guys to to, to smuggle them across the, the channel, which is the exact opposite of the truth. But anyway, that's the... That's but the what argument. I wanted to say was this this impression of awful incompetence. The incompetence is sort of downstream from the policy, right? And, and the unease about that policy being threatened by this crisis. And the incompetence then results from that. So in other words, they don't really want to do anything different. Zoe. You're absolutely right. There's something really, there's something very chilling about this. There was a load of um, Twitter traffic about this family, this queue outside one visa office where the office was open. You could see the, the doors were shut and locked, but the office was open. You could see people inside it and it was minus three degrees outside. And there were, you know, kids in the queue and an 84 year old. And it starts to make basically, it's not an accident. It's It starts to make a very powerful metaphor between a kind of overall unwillingness and an overall uselessness so that thereafter no amount of uselessness can just be cock up. It's all going to be a kind of part of the package of a government that doesn't really want to do what its international and moral obligations say that it has to. And I, and, and I think it's going to be a real problem because fundamentally Boris Johnson has got a really long way on kind of trumped up nostalgia and kind of Second World War glory days and... And people are watching this, and it is—it's a war. It's a war, and and they are trying to marshal these arguments about kind of solidarity during a war without the other foot falling, i.e., taking. Although our national history on this is is not exactly full of glory. I was reading this morning about Mrs. Thatcher's response to the so-called Vietnamese boat people. Yeah, let's not in the sort of the... late seventies, and she and, and it, the headlines are really, really similar. You know, Thatcher opposed to influx of Vietnamese refugees. So Ger- and all of this German Jewish refugees, uh, adults who weren't on the Kinder Transport, yeah, the kinder transport in, yes, but the adults were yeah. interned. Oh, yeah, they were basically yeah, yeah, put yeah. in prison because they were German. And then it's like, uh, but also, guess what? Being Jewish, probably not going to be a fan of the Nazis. Then they got out. But I mean, so <laughs> oh yeah, but listen, none of this, none of this relates to to, to kind of real things. This is not the first war there's been since the Second World War. But what it relates to is Tory and specifically Brexiteer myth-making. And that is where they're so, caught in what's a vice the myth, of their what's own What's the myth making. that's relant here? Well, the myth-making has is, is always been that, you know, we, we were this proud nation that stood alone. That's why we wanted to leave the, the EU, because it's a myth of British exceptionalism and our Bessie is being behind us, but a kind of rediscovering that spirit, rediscovering the spirit of kind of plucky 
Britishness, in, you know, exemplified in the Second World War. You can tell people that we opposed the kind of taking of Jewish refugees, that the only reason the kinder transport had to exist is because we wouldn't take the parents. You can tell people that do your blue in the face. You can tell them that the Daily Mail openly supported the Nazis, but still all their myth-making is around this kind of absolute perfection of Britain and its wartime record. All right, now let's get on to the Labour Party here. We heard Yvette Cooper very effectively and passionately tearing strips off Pretty Patel on the record of the Home Office here. But it's interesting, isn't it, to ask what Labour has to offer here? Because it's not like Keir Starmer standing there saying we need to go the way of the EU. It strikes me that for all its fury, the Labour response is 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 fundamentally bound up with the efficiency of the system and the need to make it work better, right? So it's it's not like where uh, people of a liberal leftist position would like Labour's position to be. They're not there, really. No, it's interesting, isn't it, that well, there, there seems to be a couple of elements to this. One is uh, this residual, which I do kind of understand, even when I find it frustrating, this idea that you know, the Labour leadership just doesn't want to be in the business of saying, let's be more like the EU. So the obvious thing for Keir Starmer to say might be, look, if the European Union can do it, you know, three years... Uh, accept out-of-date documents, whatever it does, just get people in. That's the humanitarian, decent thing to do. He could say that. He's not saying that. Uh, And there's obviously political reasons why not, because there is still in the back of the collective Labour Party mind or the leadership's mind a fear of the kind of voters who not that long ago were rejecting the Labour Party because they thought it had an open-door policy on immigration. The other thing, I do think with Keir Starmer in particular, there's a problem not just on the policy, but the expression. He just, if he had more, if it was better at giving the moral urgency, he might get away with having a slightly flavoured policy. He doesn't do umph and emotion terribly well. In the best possible way, I mean, emotion. Um, also, I mean, there's a question there, right, about the public. Now, I, I have a theory, which is that there is probably about 10% of the public in England, which is disproportionately male, actually, which sort of does fit some of these stereotypes about, about being sort of pull up the drawbridge and, the, you know, half of these people might be terrorists and all of those horrible cliches. But it's only 10%, and it makes a lot of noise, and it gets sort of confused with 40 or 50% of the of the public at large and and that's not the case and worse still actually it gets read into uh people's understanding of what some areas that voted heavily for Brexit are like now i don't know whether i'm naive in saying that actually i think people on the whole are sort of better than that and they understand completely as a matter of instinct the morals of a situation like this and therefore the government and perhaps the political class as a whole is sort of misreading where most people are what you find is that attitudes to immigration go up, go kind of between positive and negative according to where it is in the political discourse and what it's being used for, right? Obviously, the refugee issue is very central to the agenda, but it's, it's through a completely different perspective. So it's a perspective of kind of sanctuary and humanity rather than benefits and influxes. I think there was a very toxic moment in it would have been the late 90s, early noughties where the dis- discussion of these issues focused. You remember around the idea of bogus asylum seekers? The, that new Labour actually yeah, and the, made, and, made a lot of use of that and, term. And the, the problem there is, because I think actually most people, I think you're right, certainly the, in my experience in the sort of the political mainstream, there is a pretty clear distinction between refugees fleeing conflict and in, you know, economic migrants, for want of a better word, who are basically 
looking to join the UK labour market. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is a totally separate argument. Most people are capable of understanding those are two distinct categories of people. And actually, on a lot of continental Europe, you then add free movement, which is a completely different EU free movement, different category again. And people completely understand these distinctions. But in the UK, we particularly contaminated those lines, blurred those lines with that whole bogus asylum. Deliberately. 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 It was a proxy for, for, for trying to assure people that you were aware of where they were on on economic migration from EU countries by making a huge thing about bogus asylum seekers to make it look like you were tough. I mean, that was the, that was the position of successive Labour Home Secretaries, wasn't it? But arguably, the worst the the worst thing that Tony Blair did on this was to make it illegal for um, asylum seekers to work while their application was being processed. Because that that's the thing which has really made a kind of has made it crunchy at a, poli- a policy level. That is the thing which has left people absolutely de- destitute. And that I think is something that is going to have to be revisited if there is if and when there is a a refugee crisis that comes to the UK. And Johnson did seem to be suggesting we were talking about many hundreds of thousands. Um, then I think we're going to have to revisit the who can work and who can't. And and the, that that is on Labour's hands, I'm afraid. No, and there are, there are um, people on the right of politics. Mark Littlewood is his name from the Institute of Economic Affairs, I think was saying recently, there are, or the other day, that there are Labour shortages and therefore what's the problem, you know, that, that one thing answers yeah, yeah. the other. Um, anyway, we're going to pause for a moment. We'll be back after this to discuss how the West's decision to move away from Russian oil might be playing into the hands of Boris Johnson's backbench MPs, them again, who set up the Net Zero Scrutiny Group. That's another ginger group to add to the 15 there are already. Wondering whether this is another Steve Baker, Nigel Farage, Uncle Tom Cobbley and all moments. We'll be back in a bit. Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Welcome back. It's nice you're still there. Um, I want now to talk about the government's net zero target for carbon emissions by 2050 and where this crisis may leave it. Um, There was a coordinated announcement on Tuesday, both in Britain and America. Both countries announced a further distancing from Russian energy dependence. Um, America, as always, was more stringent than than we were, banning Russian oil, gas and coal imports. The British government, it seems, will phase out oil imports by the end of 2022. The EU, where there's a, a much greater level of dependence on Russian gas in particular, will apparently reduce its oil and gas use by a third on Monday at a Downing Street conference with the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutter, and the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, Boris Johnson said that the British government needs to invest in more nuclear and renewable sources of energy. 
So far, the success of, uh, of the West has been in the unity uh, that we've shown. I think we're all increasingly united in the view that we've got to move away now uh, from Russian hydrocarbons. We've got to do it together. We've got to make sure that we have substitute uh, and, su and substitute supply. And that's what we're, uh, we're working on as well. So the upshot of that seems to be, well, I'm all in favour of renewables, but not right now. Right. Uh, the, the point being that this moment sort of he says in the short term means we need stopgap supplies. And it, that's sort of, of of hydrocarbons. And that is sort of, therefore, encouraging elements of his own backbenches that don't like net zero at all. Nigel Farage, the blessed Nigel Farage, is back. Having moved from Brexit to COVID restrictions, he's now on, he wants a referendum, a referendum on, net on, zero, on net zero, right? Yeah. I don't um, know. I, I'm I'm maybe, a, you know, naively a little bit more generous to certainly the government position on this in that I think, you know, se separate to whether or not there's kind of, you know, showing some ankle and pandering to the net zero scrutiny group and all that, it strikes me as sort of self-evidently true that if you're having to accelerate your transition away from dependence on Russian hydrocarbons very quickly and you simply can't scale up your renewables fast enough because that's quite a long process and involves a lot of investment and you haven't you know sorted out your nuclear power stations and all the rest of it you do have a problem that the geopolitics of not using Russian hydrocarbons against the longer time scale of getting to fully renewable creates a, a gap and you might have to burn some stuff that you would otherwise wouldn't have been burning in the interim and I, I i think you have to be at least confront that dilemma with some honesty rather than thinking on the one hand you've got to be fully green or or, or, or you're surrendering to uh, steve baker well the Go thing on, is Zoe. the thing is right a couple of things firstly this is how they always get us with these referendums is that we we look at them as honest brokers and then we start having kind of these complicated discussions about whether maybe they might have a point on this but maybe not such a point on that whereas actually all they're doing is trying to muster it's, it's a muster point it's it's just a muster point to destroy us. And I really don't think... Hold on, I just want to say, so, so crudely put, your yeah. view is that it's no coincidence that in the midst of this crisis and with all this noise from the Tory backbenches about doing away with net zero, Boris Johnson starts saying, well, I think we'll have to stick with hydrocarbons for quite a lot longer. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's no coincidence at all. But the more important point is that, you know, Russian gas accounts for only 3% of usage in the UK. So we don't, we're not left with a major shortfall. We're much more, much more impacted by the energy price hikes. And in terms of how to meet that shortfall, almost no idea works unless we are prepared to go back in time and do it five years ago. So the idea that we can plug this, that we can plug this gap with fracking, for example, nothing, no new approved fracking site would be on stream for at least three years from today. No, if we wait for two or three days more, as far as I understand it, a lot of the fracking wells will be full of concrete. So it's absolutely pointless getting into a fight between whether we should fill this with onshore wind or fracked energy, because the fracking just wouldn't be ready for it. And the onshore wind, we would have had to go back to 2015 and halt the moratorium, which made no sense in and of itself, right? This whole conversation might say something, I think, about how right-wing politics works now, sort of hard-right post-Brexit politics, in the sense that... You've got the net zero scrutiny group, which apparently is led by a Tory MP called Craig McKinley. And you've got Farage outside it making all of this noise, which I personally don't think one should think is bound to fail and all that. I think, you know, when Farage tips up, he usually knows roughly what he's doing and he usually has got quite a lot of resources behind him and, and can sort of change the debate somewhat, particularly now he's on GB News. Ho, ho. And 
the problem is you've got such a weak, embattled prime minister that, as we know from COVID restrictions, right, he tends to bend to what they want. He tends to sing their tune. I, I mean, and I agree entirely with, with Zoe's analysis in terms of the, the sort of ratchet effect and just the extent to which it is. I mean, it's like it's, it's, it's not just a sequel to what happened with Euroscepticism, starting off with the kind of, well, we just don't want the euro and now we just like to repatriate some powers. And then before you know it, you're having an argument about whether you, or not you should even be a member of the EU. It's just kind of a fast and furious level to direct past comp- repetition sequel of exactly that process with exactly you know many of the same think tanks and some of the finance behind it. Um, where it is particularly clever politically at the moment and where I think it's a real challenge for progressive left or whatever politics you want to call it, you know, the people who, who, who want us to get to net zero, is the way it is being attached to the cost of living crisis. Yeah, so- and the political argument that says... No, Farage's campaign is called yeah. Power Versus Poverty yeah, or really something lost- like that. Yeah, so yeah, they've, they've stopped the crazy science denial stuff. They no longer, even though a lot of that is the same money and a lot of the same people, but they've stopped saying, we don't believe in climate science because they recognise that now sounds a bit wacky and the consensus has shifted. So it's now saying... We'd love to basically have a more renewable energy policy, but unfortunately, the cost burden of that is going to fall on ordinary people, hardworking people who like to fill, who need to fill up their white vans with petrol to go to work, and you're basically squeezing them. So what's happening now as regards the politics of the right and net zero, I think, says something about why that part of politics very often captures a lot of people's political imaginations and the sort of liberal left green side of things has has difficulty doing that. Look at what's just happened. So a matter of days ago, Nigel Farage announced that he was going to have a big sort of launch event for this Vote Power Not Poverty campaign at White's Hotel um, in Bolton, which is built um, into or onto a Bolton Wanderers ground. Anyway, Bolton Wanderers then announced they didn't want anything to do with it and that event's not going to go ahead, right? But the point was he was having a meeting about net zero, a public meeting in Bolton, right? And those of us who are in favour of net zero and the politicians who, who make a lot of noise about net zero and are, and are passionate about it, I haven't seen them having big public events in Bolton. I just thought that very vividly well, yeah, said what's it, going uh, wrong here. And the Labour line on this, which is tax, windfall tax on big electricity companies and, you know, gas, oil, hydrocarbon stuff is much stronger than the let's have a referendum on a thing that we sort of don't agree with even though we believe in climate change you know it's much much stronger so i think they're going to get bitten on the arse by who it are? i think they who think are? they've got a real well, no, um, because the practicalities of it don't matter all he's got to do it's not really about whether you can have a referendum or not you've just got to go out and say all these lefties are going to make you poor again yeah i know but the, but, but listen the the actual line is much simpler and much stronger for a change yeah, but isn't it another one of those things that shows that the sort of populist right is sort of out in the culture and in people's lives in a way that the left or the centre left should be and isn't because it's sort of stuck in the orthodox sort of Westminster game. I think there there are two... Uh, to, uh, wrinkles to this one yeah, what my yeah, argument yeah, no well just first of all the extent to which you know are they actually properly out in the culture you know, in touch with something that's real and organic and happening on the ground that we in our metropolitan liberal kind of citadel haven't noticed or does that get kind of laundered by Fleet Street in the press and the Conservative Party I think the point is once people's bills jump really really jump up by 1500 or 2 grand a year then they will be right well, I mean, the, yes. Well, it depends whether the argument is then should we then have should we be having cutting VAT or you know is the problem the fact that a bunch of you know yogurt knitting sandal wearing lefties. Well, he wants it all. He wants, he wants VAT cut. He wants to bring back well, on coal that latter and one, everything. Yeah. I I wonder whether 
things have moved on since then. I remember having this conversation at the time of the coalition government when you know, David Cameron was was still notionally trying to burnish his green credentials. It was a different era. And there, conservative strategists were saying, it's really hard because if you raise green issues in a focus group uh, with a group of swing voters, what they will say is, oh, have you seen how much veg costs at the farmer's market? That stuff's all middle-class rip-off stuff. That was what people thought of as the green issue. I think it's completely changed now. I think that the understanding, the, 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 the nature of what the actual issue is uh, has, has shifted and it's also no longer just a generational thing where it's something younger people care about and they're not voters that Nigel Farage is particularly interested in so I, I, I'm I cautiously optimistically agree with Zoe that I think he's he's, he's not going to get the same purchase and traction with this one You don't worry though Zoe that he'll get purchase and traction from Boris Johnson because what happens is Farage flexes his muscles and the Mark Harper Steve Baker net zero scrutiny group bit of the Tory party, which goes all the way into the cabinet in the form of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nadine Doris, arguably, right? He's he's scared of those people. We know that. And so irrespective of how this lands with the public, therefore you've got a problem. I don't even think it's about whether he's scared of them. I think it's more that that's the only, that's, that's the only generative bit of support for him is mobilising de- mobilizing the people who want to say yeah. no to everything for stupid yeah. reasons. You know, any kind of mainstream Tory who went with Johnson because they didn't want Corbyn or whatever, those people have really gone off um, Boris Johnson. And so if he wants to generate anything anything remotely resembling kind of excitement and support around himself, he does have to go to the kind of wingnut um, element of his party. What's the cardinal rule of being a leader of the Conservative Party? Don't get on the wrong side of the Daily Mail and the right-wing backbenchers. Exactly. That's just the rule. And exactly. They, if you get on the wrong side of those things, you end up out. That's what happened to Theresa May. It's what happened to David Cameron. He's not an idiot. He, Boris Johnson understands the rule. Uh, before we finish, and without wanting to send everyone home feeling terribly, terribly depressed, clearly this isn't really about the sort of machinations of the backbenchers of the Tory party and Boris Johnson's politics or lack of them and all the rest of it. The point is that if we, among other countries, in the midst of this crisis, begin to go off the idea of net zero carbon emissions by 2050, let alone an earlier date, then the planet's in terrible, terrible Well, surely the opposite is going to happen, though. I mean, clearly what's happened now is an argument that people were making even 10 years ago, which is there's actually a brilliant geostrategic reason to make the transition to renewables, even if you don't care about the climate science, has now been massively demonstrated on a huge scale. Like, it's that's so obviously true. So he said that last week. Or the week before, actually. But you did say that, didn't you? I did say it the week before. But I felt bad about that afterwards because it sounded like I was saying, oh, Russia's invaded Ukraine, but look on the bright side. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously it does make that case I'm glad you also sometimes feel bad about things you say on this podcast. I'm already feeling bad about something I said (laughs) at the beginning of this podcast because I thought I was sounded too callous about uh, about Yvette Cooper's motivation when actually the real issue was the moral imperative of saving refugees. So I'm I'm glad that you all sometimes flinch in hindsight. You now sound like people frantically sending text messages the morning after a particularly (laughs) raucous party. And I don't want to get into that. So on that uh, that note, I think we're going to conclude. I mean, obviously... This moment of even further crisis for the world is throwing up all sorts of things which are then rippling through domestic politics. So um, this is probably a good time for us to be gathering once a week to discuss all this stuff. Thank you for joining me as ever, Zoe Williams and Raphael Bear. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you to you out there for listening. Finally, if you enjoy listening to The Guardian's Jonathan Freeland discussing US politics every Friday, you'll probably want to subscribe to his new podcast as Johnny's show won't be available on this podcast for much longer. It's called Politics Weekly America. It has a big picture of him on its logo and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts so to get all the latest news from Washington and beyond search for Politics Weekly America and hit subscribe that's Politics Weekly America out every Friday this episode of Politics Weekly UK was produced by Natalie Catena 
The sound and music was by Axel Kakutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. We'll be back next Thursday. This is The Guardian. <laughs>